I'm Lee Schneider. This is Baby Crazy, the podcast for parents over 40. Today we're talking about the balance of power in your family and how to keep your kids from bullying you. You might be a first-timer or a pro-parent, but I guarantee that the over 40 experience of parenting is way different from when you were younger. In episode one, I speak with Sean Grover, a psychotherapist, speaker, and author with 25 years experience working with kids and adults. I read his book, When Kids Call the Shots, How to Seize Control from Your Darling Bully and Enjoy Being a Parent Again, and I loved it, and I knew right away that I had to invite him to the podcast. He wants you to consider the culture you create for your family, and really, the culture you want to raise your children in. Here's my conversation with Sean. Hey, Sean, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Lee. Before we start, I heard a rumor that you're married to a goddess. Yes, that's true. I am married to a goddess. I met her at my first and last yoga retreat. Uh, I didn't have to go to any more after that. I'd met the goddess. <laughs> I love that. So the rumors are true. The rumors are true. It's not just, not just a Twitter thing. It's real. We're with Sean Grover. He's the author of When Kids Call the Shots, How to Seize Control from Your Darling Bully and Enjoy Being a Parent Again. So, Sean, first off, why did you write the book? Well, I wrote the book because I was really struggling as a parent, and I was reading a lot of parenting books. And I, I just found so many of the books were giving me this script that just didn't, I couldn't speak it. It wasn't really who I was. It, it didn't reflect the person I am, because a lot of the books are generic or they give you checklists. And also there was this odd sensation of having failed even more, reading the book, trying to do what they recommended, it not going well, and I was an even bigger failure. This book really grew and was sort of born out of my own struggles as a parent, which I realized uh, begins with you as a person. You're a person before you're a parent. So I had to really address my own insecurities, my own impulsiveness, my own temper issues. First, before I could become an effective parent, sometimes we try to force feed ourselves these solutions, and we really haven't done the hard work of working on ourselves first, and then engaging with our children. So that's what really inspired me to write this book. So the first few chapters, I really asked parents to consider their history, consider how they were raised, what their parents did that worked, what didn't work. Are they repeating mistakes their parent made? Are they acting in defiance of their parents? If their parents were uh, dictatorial or punishing, are they too liberal and too permissive, too accommodating? So I really want parents to climb inside their own history first and figure out what are the what are the roots of these problems? They're much deeper than just the relationship with your child. You bring your whole history into that relationship. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, I found that myself. The book has workshoppy things that you could fill out. And when I was doing that, my first thing was, uh, you know, this looks like psychotherapy to me. I don't really want to do it. But when I did it, I did discover a lot of the things that you're talking about, that these imprints and and patterns are set in us. And in some ways, we're just rolling them out unthinkingly to our own kids, especially when things get tough, when you're in a yelling mood or when you're trying to discipline or when you shouldn't be disciplined. I think it's what people refer to when they say, gosh, I just said some words that came out of my father's mouth, and now here I am saying them myself, and that was terrible. It never feels good when you repeat, uh, when you're operating in this kind of impulsive, 
unconscious space. You know, every family has a culture, and culture is generally unconscious until you brush up against another culture. So I can remember when I was a kid going to a friend's house, and they were a lovely family. I really enjoyed going there. But everyone cursed. I mean, they just cursed like a drunken sailor. The mother cursed the father. Uh, but it wasn't even hostile. It was just part of their culture. In my house, that would not fly. So it doesn't really matter, you know, if you speak the same language, if you're from the same part of town. Every family, once you walk through that front door, you're in their culture. And what I'm encouraging parents to do is consider consciously the culture they want to create for their family, the culture they want to raise their child in. And that's going to take a little bit of work to consider these things that normally we don't consider. Right. It's consciousness and awareness, really, that kind of think before you act or be aware before you act. You write about the differences between leading and kind of coaching and reacting. Can you go into those differences about how we're being with our children on an everyday basis? This is everything. This, is, this to me, is more valuable than all the checklists and all the recommendations. How you are with your child, how you interact, how you listen, uh, how you communicate, you are modeling every moment how to be in a relationship. You're training your child. This is how you are in a relationship. So if we look at children, right, we've got really a two-track way of operating the world. Impulse, action. Impulse, action. Impulse, action. And parents are put in this position where they have to stop after the impulse because they're going to hurt themselves. They have to say, no, you can't do that. You know, nature puts children and their parents on this collision course because kids don't know what's safe and what isn't. So as an adult, as a parent, you really want to model, yeah, okay, we'll start with the impulse, but we want to pause, I call it a reflective pause, make a decision, then take the action. So rather than impulse action, you're looking at impulse, reflective pause, decision, and then action. Now, if your child watches you in that process, if you say to the child, let me think about that for a minute, hmm, let me go through pros and cons, hmm, you're demonstrating to them how to make decisions in a more mindful way. But if you're, you're also your child's impulse action and your impulse action, and I saw this <laughs> a friend of mine who's a kindergarten teacher, she was really exhausted at the end of the day. Uh, one of the girls said to her, um, she said, you have to go put your bag up. And the girl said, leave me alone. Shut up. And my friend said, no, you shut up. And she was shocked. She was shocked that because children induce a regression in us. So when you're with children a lot, you begin to act more childlike. So it's really important in terms of not becoming impulsive and taking and reinforcing impulsivity in the child. When you're with children a lot, you become more childlike. That is so true. And it makes what you're talking about initially really hard, a real challenge. But you have to make it a habit you somehow. And I think it's just repetition and training. I mean, the only way I've gotten even close to getting out of impulsive reactions is really having to verbalize it, like you said, to say, now let me think about that, or let me count to three for a moment, almost forcing myself 
to get into the habit to do that. Otherwise, it just wasn't going to happen. I would be in that kind of kid's world and I'd just be swirling around. That's right. And you can also use that in terms of modeling how to work with your feelings. So you can say to your child, oh, I'm so angry right now. Oh, I'm so upset right now. I need to take a moment. If you can turn anything into a game, children are on board. Set the timer for five minutes. Five minutes because I'm in such a bad mood. And then... You'll be amazed how your children start to repeat these these patterns. You know, absolutely, becoming conscious of that is is the first step, and that has to happen even before you try to correct the problem with your child. Because a lot of times, the problem with your child, you're blaming the mirror for your reflection. You really got to start working on yourself, and then we'll talk about your kid. When we're talking about feelings, here we are showing our kids how to work with feelings in a way, creating a language of feelings. So when we get into the next step, when we're not exploding anymore, or at least we think we're listening to each other, us and the kid, how can merely listening to them help? Just the idea (laughs) of having them state their feelings, does that do anything? Think about this for a minute, Lee. Everything we do in therapy, every modality in therapy, everything we do is based 90% on listening. So listening is curative. Listening is healing. When people feel they are being listened to and understood, you can see the tension drain from their body. But if you experience that when you're with a friend that really listens and understands you, how your body just just exhaled. Listening is the first step. And then interpreting for the child. I remember once I was working, I was running a program in elementary school. And a child uh, came out of the classroom in sort of a fit, and he tore all these paintings off the wall that other kids had done, just tore them down. And I, it happened so quickly, but my friend, a guidance counselor, came out and said, hey, what's going on here? Wow, you are so mad. Something really upset you. Come in my office and tell me what happened. And within three to five minutes, that kid was talking and then crying and then giving him a hug. But if we responded with strictly punishment and yelling and coming down on him, we're going to drive him into compliance, but we're also going to feed an undercover defiance or he's going to get back at you. So in that moment where a kid did something so destructive and unthinkable to other kids' artwork, uh, my friend who's trained in this was able to help him express the underlying feeling that drove him to take that action. Completely different outcome. And by the way, a lot more efficient in terms of time. Within five minutes, he had that kid calming down back in the hall, putting the pictures back on the wall and apologizing. Have we just dragged him into the principal's office and punished him and called his parents? I don't think we'd get the same benefits. Validating their feelings, validating a kid's feelings, that's a big deal. But they don't even know what they're feeling. So we had to, before we can even validate it, we had to help them to explore or feed the feeling to them. Wow, you're in a really grumpy mood. Oh, you're feeling so grumpy this morning. What, what, what are the things we can do when we feel grumpy? And then you go through, you like to be alone, you know, et cetera. You're really building in these healthy habits and these patterns for managing feelings, especially aggression, especially aggression. I mean, the world is a disaster because people can't manage their aggressive feelings. They don't know how to process them. They have to convert them into actions. Parenting is really... <laughs> an opportunity to change that. So true. 
You talked about compliance. I want to come back to that. Compliance can breed undercover defiance. Now, I know exactly what you're talking about, and I'm sure many parents listening also know this. We default to compliance. We default to bribery. We default, we'll do anything to get compliance. You know, please be quiet. Please do this. I'll give you this. I'll give you that. But that quick, short circuit to compliance actually doesn't really solve anything, right? It's not dealing with any of the underlying feelings or anything like that. Well, you win the battle, but you lose the war. If a child complies, they'll do what you want. Uh, and you may feel satisfied, but you've really done nothing to strengthen that child's sense of self. You don't have true cooperation. You're operating within a bullying range, and my book deals with children who bully their parents. So if you're bullying your child by using your size and your power, that child's going to maybe bully their sibling, or maybe as they get older, bully you, and you'll be amazed, where did this come from? But if we really look at those dynamics and turning getting a child to comply instead of whipping them into shape and and uh, toe the line as you define down the line they may turn that on you i can you know i can certainly see that especially when you know we're talking mostly about younger kids but when they reach preteen and teenager age and they're as big or bigger than you are and they have mobility and they're driving around in cars, if you don't address some of these things in the early stage of their life and your life, it really, you could see how you're digging a deep hole for yourself down the line. Absolutely. And if you look at all we know, all the science on the prefrontal cortex, now they're saying the prefrontal cortex, by the way, uh, controls uh, mood, impulse control, and just how we interact with the world and, and work with our feelings. That doesn't mature until 26 years old. So you're working with children or teenagers that brains, their brains aren't really fully developed. They need help in learning to apply the brakes on a car or apply the brakes in a conversation or apply the brakes when their feelings get a little out of control. They need help with that. I don't see how uh, leaning hard on punishing and you know coming down severely on a child, how that's going to help them ultimately learn self-mastery. Now, humor. Humor can certainly break a mood, and it certainly works with babies and, you know, toddlers. You can just start dancing around or acting funny, and and you can get them out of a tantrum or get them out of a, a power struggle that way sometimes. But sometimes I felt guilty, you know, being funny or just kind of snapping them out of it by bringing out a toy, thinking that they hadn't processed all that was going on. Is it better sometimes to just try to snap them out of it with a with a joke or doing something funny. You know, what's the best approach when, say, you're in tantrum territory or you know you're in a terrible power struggle about getting on your socks before school and there seems like nothing's going to break it and we got to get to school? That's, that's one of the big ones, getting your kid out the door on time. You'd have to work backwards from the conflict and figure out how to preempt it. <laughs> Should your child sleep in the socks? Do you have breakfast together? Is it certain days... Uh, do they meet friends downstairs? We need a lot more people on the field than just you and your child. And as your child gets older, it really helps to have sort of a team approach to parenting. Uh, so you can avoid this, you know, high noon, put your socks on. No, put them on. No, you know, that's, we've all been there. I certainly have. But um, a sense of humor for me takes the edge off. I run a lot of groups with teenagers and they always come at me, especially if they're new. 
they'll they'll make jokes about me and and if I join in with them, they're shocked because they see most adults as humorless, inflexible, opinionated, punishing. But if I laugh with them or I joke with them, they get a different feeling suddenly. So with your child, if you're creating a joke to avoid a harsh moment and an uh, maybe a, a teaching moment, that's maybe not so great. But if you see a temper tantrum or, or something, a meltdown's coming and you know your child hasn't eaten dinner or it's really late at night or they didn't sleep through, there's all these conditions that uh, exist to, to push that moment forward. A sense of humor will never let you down. Also, I've learned from reading your book that if your kid is in a tantrum or in some kind of super anger cycle or there's a big power struggle, they can hardly hear what you're saying. They're not really processing anything in that moment. And I've had to learn to defer if there's going to be a teaching moment or any kind of resolution. That's going to happen later. In the tantrum moment, nothing's happening pretty much except the tantrum. So maybe if humor gets me out of that or takes the pressure off for a moment, I know that I'm probably having the teaching moment or something better happening, but it's happening later. That's right. And you can revisit these things and always leave with the positive. You know, yesterday when we when you're really upset or actually 24 hours is like a year to a small child, so you want to do it uh, within an hour or two and say like, I really... Uh, I, I saw how angry you were, and I was really happy to see that you blah, blah, blah. Like you reinforce and revisit. And this is a great tip that I talk about in the group. You use your child as a consultant. You model for them how you're working with your feelings. I do this in therapy with children all the time. I may say, I, was, I have to go to this party I was invited to. I really don't want to go. I'm not sure what I should do. And the child will say, well, do you want to go? I, say, I don't know. I'm I do. And we go through it. So then this child gets to see my process. So then they will come back to me maybe a week or two later and say, something happened with my friend. I'm really, I'm really mad at him. Said, what happened? And we'll talk through it now that I've sort of set the tone for that uh, and allowed them to see I'm talking to you like I would any adult. I'm not talking down to you. And I'm sharing my own insecurities. And let's talk about yours. That's a safe environment for a child. That child will then bring problems to the parent rather than hide them. Let's bring this back to bullying. And so much of what happens in the bullying dynamic is somewhat incremental. You sort of slide your way into it. And before you know it, you have a full-scale war. And I would wonder, well, how did I get here? <laughs> it begins, I think, right? You, you talked about it. it begins with testing moments, right? I mean, how do we kind of recognize, how do we get to the beginning of this and stop it before it gets really bad? Well, the testing moments, children are generally problem solvers. They're trying to figure out how to solve something. So they have the worst logic or the worst sense of reason. So of course, pulling a chair over to the bookshelf and climbing up to the top shelf to get, a, that makes sense. There's a problem. I can't reach the bug. I'm going to climb up. So in a way, they're just trying to, you know, use what they have. In terms of testing parents, they don't want to go to bed. They don't want to eat certain foods. They don't want to wear certain clothes. I remember my daughter, oh my gosh, getting her to put her winter jacket on. She would not put her winter jacket on. I mean, here in New York, sometimes, you know, it's like five degrees out. I'm not wearing my jacket. And you're like, oh my God. But... 
how I manage that testing moment, how I demonstrate my own working with my feelings or my own level of maturity and talking it through. And maybe let's go outside and then you can decide if you want to wear it or not. And believe me, when we got outside, she wanted to wear her jacket. So rather than overriding the testing moment and turning into a punishing moment or trying to control your child, which by the way, no one likes to be controlled. If I uh, do a workshop and I say to parents, uh, you know, I don't want anyone to touch their face for the next 10 minutes. <laughs> That's all they're going to be thinking about, you know. So uh, we really got to steer away from that old path of punishment over disciplining children. You want your child to be a little defiant. You want your child to be a little outspoken. You want them to have a voice. You want them to push back. If your child's too compliant and gives into your every wish and command, you're going to have a kid that's probably going to struggle with depression or anxiety as they get older because their sense of themselves was never really fostered. Their sense of pleasing you and being dependent on your approval was there in place of that. I want to talk about self-esteem in a moment, but I also want to bring up our version of the jacket thing here in California is sunscreen. Every morning <laughs> we have an argument about sunscreen. And the only solution we found is to kind of turn it into a game or create agency. Give him the sunscreen stick and say, here, you put it on. He'll do that because then at least he's doing it. That's right. Turning it into a game. He can put the sunscreen on you and you could put it on him or he, you could have a contest. Who could put the sunscreen on faster? Me or you? One, two, three, go. Uh, anytime you turn it into a playful game with a sense of humor, kids are on board. The thing is, you know, there's no quick fix with that. You have to work on it and see what uh, happens. I had a friend who couldn't get his two kids. They were his stepsons. And I think they were uh, like something like nine and 13. Couldn't get them out of bed in the morning. And he bought them each. They picked out a very unique alarm clocks. And he set up a game where whoever got up and dressed first out the door got this. And if you didn't, you got that. And, and suddenly... The screaming match in the house, and I remember his mother telling me she was amazed because she had been screaming at these boys for years, that the alarms went off and they were off racing to who could get dressed first and get out the door and so forth. He had a whole bunch of different games around the morning and around getting a special breakfast on the corner or picking up a bagel as we do here in New York. But he, he made it fun. So everyone's going to face that. Everyone's going to face, I don't want to do something and then as a parent, how are you going to get them to cooperate? Yeah, it's this whole argument, the seesaw between uh, incentives and rewards. You can say, if you do this, I'll give you candy. You know, if we do this, we'll get ice cream. Do you, do you like that? I don't like no. that. I, just when you said that, I was like, no, I, I'm being bribed. Uh, Bribery. Being yeah. We all, even adults, I mean, we work for incentives. You know, if I work really hard today, I'll take a bike ride later. If I, or I'll get to go to the gym or, you know, if we work really hard and get all this done, I'll take a walk around the block. I mean, I'm, you, I don't call that a bribe. It's more of an incentive for my positive behavior. And it's also my litmus test for that is that I'm offering something positive, not a lump of candy, but some exercise or something like that. Am I on the right track with that? You're on the right track. And I'm glad we agree on this whole reward system. Reward systems do not work with certain kind of personalities. A defiant child... Uh, the reward system is may actually drive their defiance up. 
They're going to become manipulative. They're going to outsmart you. They're going to say they did something it didn't. You're playing on their turf. But in terms of getting them to cooperate with incentives or um, there was a time, I remember my daughter were trying to get out to have sushi. She loves sushi. She was about six years old. She just wasn't cooperating. And, and then at some point I had to say, okay, I really, I'm, this is really sad, but we're not going to get sushi. What? Because we can't leave. Look at the time. We don't have time. She was so upset, but rather than allow her to descend into that, and I'm making myself self, real, self sound really smart here, but there was a lot of struggle in between. I told her, she was old enough, I said, go to your room and write down all the reasons we should go. All the reasons and why we weren't going. She wrote a full page and slid it under my door. I actually still have this piece of paper. It's so adorable. My daughter's in college now, and I'll take the sushi document out every now and then. But that, giving her time alone to process things and put it into words, this is something that every guidance counselor does, uh, that parents can do also. That, that really matured her. That gave her a chance to develop her voice. And that feels good. You know, if I ask kids to tell me one of their, or, or adults, let's take an adult who comes in for therapy and I'll say, what? tell me some of the best moments of your childhood. It almost never comes down to a gift, an ice cream cone, a reward. They never mention those things. What they mention is the day they were acknowledged for this, the day they did really well in sports or the day their mother recognized that they were going to be a musician and she supported them. These are emotional. These have traction. These stay with you. The rewards, if I were to ask any kid who walks in my office next week when I go back to work, what did you get for your birthday two years ago? They're going to really struggle. So that idea that rewards works, okay, it works, but it's empty calories in my book. What we're headed toward here is why is building self-esteem so important? Well, self-esteem, hmm, where to even begin with that one? Um, you know, there's this uh, workshop I, I give for parents at schools, all the five things every child needs. And it's become sort of my greatest hits everywhere I go. They want to hear the five things that every child needs. And self-esteem is one of them. And the first we're looking at is tension outlets. A cardio workout, three days a week, 30 minutes, lowers anxiety and depression by up to 70% in the average child or adult. So if you have a, a child that's sitting on the couch all day, that's playing video games all day, that's watching ridiculous YouTube videos, not that I'm against ridiculous YouTube videos, but if they're not active, you bring that child to my office, I'm going to make them, parents, pay the price for that. They've got to get the child off the couch. The interesting thing, when we look, we start with tension outlets first, because they, they can't discharge tension verbally yet, but they can physically. And we look at esteem building activities. These are the activities that are built on your child's unique talents and passions. Are they good in music? Are they good in drawing? Are they a good athlete? We want to foster these capabilities because they are the great insulators against life stress. So if you fail a test, if you get rejected, you lean on the things you do well. A lot of kids I work with who have learning disabilities and very severe ones are masters of other areas. They have fantastic people skills. You would never know. They compensate so well. Their self-esteem cannot be reliant on academics, but it can be reliant on what they do well. So a parent is really going to hunt down and target those areas because 
ultimately, those self-esteem tasks are also self-soothing. So a child that can sit and draw is self-soothing. A child that can sit in their room and play their guitar is self-soothing. So self-esteem is so essential in terms of how they relate to each other and to themselves and how they value themselves. Uh, when you have a lower self-esteem, there's all sorts of risks involved and kids can fall under the influence of other kids that you're not so so uh, excited about. We're talking about a counterbalance to life's stresses. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's a wonderful tool to have when you're faced with stress that you know what helps you. I had a hyperactive kid in my office. I used to run these groups of hyperactive boys. Just think about that, being locked in a room with 10 hyperactive boys. <laughs> what was I thinking? But I remember the day uh, the worst of them brought in his guitar to play because he was very good. And I looked around the room and everyone was perfectly still. And this boy was so focused. And I thought, hey, this is something. That ability for him to, that, that sense of self-esteem and solidity he got from doing something he does well and demonstrating mastery had sudden, such an impact on him and everyone in the room. And so rather than back in those days trying to get them to cooperate, from there on in, I brought in uh, teenagers I work with who would intern with me to teach art classes. I brought in people to do movement classes. I wanted the kids to really explore what they were good at. And then I gave the parents uh, very specific homework in terms of getting your kid into fencing was really great with boys for a while. Kid, girls today, kickboxing. It's all about kickboxing. Any of those activities will build self-esteem, which we want, but also lower tension. It's a two-for-one deal. As parents, we really want to do this well. And we're recommending the kickboxing and we're recommending the fencing. But suddenly we realize, hey, my health is declining. I might be burning out. And again, this is that incremental argument, the incrementalism of raising a child, being a parent. How can you even tell if you're a burned out parent and what can you do about it? Like a lot of parents come to my office and I can see it. I can see it in their eyes. They, they aren't communicating well. They're fatigued. They're irritable. They're humorless. They're short-tempered. They're out of shape. Parenting is so brutal on your physical and psychological selves. You fall very naturally into a state of self-neglect. After the birth of my first child, I packed on 35 pounds. <laughs> I, don't even, I don't even know. Within the first year or two, and then my second child was born, and then my doctor told me I was in the, at 38 years old, I was in the highest risk category for a heart attack. It was shocking. When I look at photos of myself back then, I, I, I burned most of them. I don't even know where. I'm sure my wife has some stash somewhere just to punish me. If you would ask me in that moment, how I was doing? Great. Yeah, I feel great. It's going well. I didn't know how bad off I was. So a lot of times with parents, I have to stop them before we get into your kids. How are you two doing? And they always get this deer in the headlights. What do you mean? What do you mean how we're doing? Because they're in this, they're servicing their kids so much and they're not servicing their relationship and they're not servicing themselves. You cannot be an effective parent if you are burned out. You cannot be an effective partner if you are burned out. So bringing that to your attention and giving them homework, like I need you to go on a date this week without your kids. Can you get to the gym? Can you go for a run together? Any machinery 
breaks down without maintenance. And parents are the same way. So getting them on their feet and feeling better is going to be the express lane to them parenting better. Yeah, my wife and I started thinking about this after reading the book. What did we used to do together that, that in the beginning of our relationship? Well, yoga, running, cycling. We ought to get some of that on the schedule. And sometimes we've had to get a babysitter to do it, but it has been really worth it, even a little bit. I find this incremental idea is so powerful for me because you go f- so far down the road, you don't realize how deep in the woods you are. And you know what's amazing to me about this is that when you come back from that date, when you come back from the gym, when you come back with your partner or alone, they're delighted. They, every child wants their parent to be happy. An unhappy parent is a burden at any age. One of the big questions I ask with parents who are burned out is what did you give up when you became a parent? What passion did you give? Did you stop writing? Did you stop making things? Did you stop traveling? What did you give up? Because that's something we have to reactivate. Yeah, kids really feel and see the love between their parents. And they really want their parents to be show love, be in love, and love them. But they don't have any words for that, So, especially when they're young. They, they just want attention. And it's this constant seesaw between, well, mom and dad need to nurture their relationship, but yes, you need all the attention we can give you. So I can see, the it's easy to see the collision, but it's interesting to think about this resurrecting something that you did, were, had before you were a parent and bringing that back so you can regenerate yourself is a brilliant idea. And, and, And it has an effect on the children. If I can go back to when I was working in the elementary schools, and uh, I started a, a breakfast, uh, once-a-week breakfast session for parents. It was just a way, a clever way of getting them into my office. But they would sit there and eat, and, and we'd talk about how things were going. And then I brought out all these art supplies. And I asked them to create something I'd like to hang on their wall, on, the, on my wall in my office. So the mothers would sit, and the fathers, this, there's always so few fathers, would come, and they'd paint something or make something, and I would hang it up. And I would watch their kids get so excited when they came into the office, into my office and saw what their parent made. They would bring their friends after school to my office to show what their parent did. They want to take pride in their parents. You can't take pride in a burnt-out parent. That is a burden. That is modeling for you that life is drudgery. It's just service and just joyless. Taking care of yourself, people say, well, that's selfish. Well, a selfless parent is, is in my book, is equally a crime as one who would be selfish. You, you need self-care. And let's stop talking about selfishness or selflessness. Let's talk about self-care as the model for our children to take care of themselves also. So true. It's really about modeling. And so much of what we're trying to do here is model and show, and but teach without being overbearing. So... What would be the one last thing, any final thoughts you'd like to leave us with? Be the change you want to see in your child. That is the express lane to better parenting. Parenting is a learn-as-you-go situation. We're going to have to learn the hard way. That's the way we all learn. So a lot of parents are very hard on themselves or come down on themselves if they screwed up or if they lost their temper. But that's just an opportunity to say to your child, I'm sorry, 
or I wish I handled that differently. We want to help our children develop their humanity, develop their compassion, and develop their ability to listen and to hear and to communicate. And we can only do that by demonstrating ourselves. In my book, I strive to be as practical and as jargon-free as possible and as simple as possible. Sean Grover, When Kids Call the Shots, How to Seize Control from Your Darling Bully and Enjoy Being a Parent Again. That's the book. You can get it on Amazon. Hey, Sean, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you so much, Lee. Look for show notes about this episode at goingbabycrazy.live. I will also post a transcript of the show and some key takeaways right there online. So check out goingbabycrazy.live. A lot of people get the show on iTunes. And if that's you, don't forget to rate us and post a comment. When you do that, it helps us reach more listeners. And by the way, I'd love to hear from you directly. The listener feedback line is 424-265-1634. Just dial that up and leave your comments about the show. You can also listen on Simplecast, Stitcher, and Google Play. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. I'm Lee Schneider. Hey, it's Lee Schneider, a co-founder of the FutureX Podcast Network. Have you heard of Good Pods yet? It's a new app where you can follow your friends and influencers to see what podcasts they're listening to. So for all of you who spend too much time scrolling around, trying to figure out where is that great new show, this will solve your problems. Just download Good Pods from the App Store, pick some people to follow, and invite your friends. And you'll never be without a podcast recommendation again.